The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It's so good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Chris Bowen, and it's so good to see kids again. Uh, I know parents, you may feel as if this is uh, a lot, and it is, uh, and you may feel like your little one and their little voice is loud and booming and disturbing everyone in the room, and that's not the case. And so if you're at home or if you're in the room, we, we are so glad you are, are with us. Uh, we want our little ones uh, to see their mothers and fathers and friends of their parents and the, the community at large uh, worshiping and loving Jesus. And so what better way for them to do that than to be in the house of the Lord And so as we look at the Lord's Word this morning, again, we're in Psalm 119. Would you stand for in honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word? We're going to look at Psalm 119 and 137 through 152. We, in the Hebrew alphabet, are looking at Sade and Kof. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord. And right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and your commandment and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let us pray. Father, give us attention to your word. Lord, would we, as the psalmist writes, not forget it, as so many do. So Lord, would you send your spirit to write the truth of your word, the truth of your grace and mercy upon our hearts so that we would live in accordance with it all of our days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we inch back into the beginning of the school year, uh, it is an uncertain time. Uh, Some schools are starting a little earlier for big moments in their own um, existence. Uh, Other schools are anxious about when they will start and whether that will be virtual or, or physical. As I've been listening to a lot of this and hearing it, it reminded me of a time when I went back to school. 
after I had graduated seminary, I took a job, a, a calling in ministry with a campus ministry. And I worked at a large state school north of Atlanta. And as a single campus minister, I was back on the campus trying to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve the church. And I found myself sitting uh, over coffee and with lunches with all these different students. I would ask them about their story, where they grew up, and how they found their, their, themselves at the university where they were studying. And what I began to hear through the course of these stories is that they would talk about their freshman year and how they had moved in and connected with some friends and different things had gone on in their life. And usually this phrase would come up. And then the next semester I lost hope. And I started to hear this over and over again, and I, I began to think, what is wrong with this place? And I would move in, and I would try to minister and talk about the gospel, and they seemed to kind of brush it off and didn't really know what was going on. And then I dug a little deeper, and I found out that in the state of Georgia, they had a scholarship through the lottery called the Hope Scholarship. And there were so many students that what they were saying was, I would lost my scholarship, but they had not lost hope. So I was a little relieved. The longer I spent in campus ministry, the more I found that that wasn't always the case. While they might have been talking about their scholarship, what I found is that I entered into their world, and as they trusted me more and more, they allowed me into the brokenness that encumbered their lives. I remember one instance sitting with a young lady in the student commons. She was struggling with depression. She struggled with being bipolar and her meds just quite, weren't working quite right. She had been abused as a child and she was engaged in self-harm. She had a low view of herself. And I remember I just sat there and running through all my Greek paradigms and all the theology that I learned in seminary and I said, this did not prepare me for this moment. And I sat there and I looked at her and I said, there are no lost causes in the economy of God's kingdom. Jesus hasn't given up on you. And that's something important for us to hear today. Because what this psalm is talking about, this particular section of the psalm, is where to, do we run when we experience adversity? Where do we run and where do we turn when life gets hard? What this psalmist is saying is that in the presence of adversity, I won't have feelings of hopelessness. I won't go to that place. What he's saying is because of God's righteous word, I will have hope. So what he's saying is, is I won't let my feelings get the best of me. I will remind them of the truth of God's word, and in it, I will hope. You see, hopelessness might look like the loss of a scholarship. It might, feel, it might be feeling that we're completely unworthy because of physical harm that we have experienced through people that we trusted. It may have been a poor view of ourself. It could be a desperate time in our marriage or in our relationships at school. It could be just life at work is hard. And we're not sure how we're going to get by to the next meal or the next month. We're just, we're just hoping for something. 
It was interesting, I was looking up, and we're all in this together with this coronavirus, and so I found on the Mayo Clinic some helpful tips for mental health. Get enough sleep. Participate in regular physical activity. Eat healthy. Limit screen time. Relax and recharge. That's easier said than done. It goes on, it says, keep a regular routine. Limit exposure to news media. Stay busy. Focus on positive thoughts. Set priorities. Now, there is certainly common grace wisdom in this. But what it seems to be doing is to distract us and focus away from the problem that we're dealing with, and it doesn't tell us how to deal with it. It just says, try to avoid it and do enough things in your life that will make it better. So often, that's the way we approach problems in life. We turn in our world to try to avoid things, and we commit ourselves to relationships, to images on screens, to substances in bottles, whether it be pills or in liquid form, in relationships, or we simply just become workaholics. And in that, we're pursuing something, and what we are pursuing is stability. We're pursuing shalom. And what God's Word reminds us, and what the psalmist is reminding us today, is that we do not respond to the adversity with feelings of hopelessness. We respond in hope on account of God's word. Because God is righteous, we are not hopeless. Because God is righteous, we are not hopeless. And that is the theme of one of the themes of Psalm 119, and it is the theme that we are looking at this morning. If you're looking for three points, I'm not going to do it today. Um, But what I want us to look at is this word righteous or righteousness. It's used four times in eight verses beginning in 137. I told Bill earlier we have uh, commented about through the the acronym uh, of of the golden alphabet as as Spurgeon called it of, of Psalm 119 that each of these verses starts with the particular Hebrew alphabet that it's looking at. This week with Sade, it's sort of like hitting the Psalm 119 jackpot. Because Sade, that particular Hebrew letter, begins to frame a particular word grouping. That word grouping talks about God's righteousness. So what I sort of start about, look at this morning as we dive into this text is, well, well what is righteousness? What is this passage driving at when it's looking at this word grouping. It tells us in verse 1, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. It's telling us that righteousness is an attribute, a characteristic of who God is, is innate in his being. And because it is innate in his being and it is characteristic of him, therefore his word is equally righteous. There is an old saying that someone is a man of their word. And in a previous era, when we were in a less litigious society, what would happen is someone would shake your hand and give you their word, and that you knew, based on that person's reputation and character, that they were good for it. Sadly to say, we don't treat 
contracts and agreements in our world like that anymore. We have not, our word isn't quite uh, equal to the characteristics of humanity. And so what we're finding in this, this idea of righteousness and unpacking it in a biblical uh, framework, is it talks about an ethical standard, an ethical standard of moral purity. So when it is saying that God is righteous, it is referring to the truth that there is a standard, that there is something ethical or right What's closely associated with this word righteousness is justice. That there is something that is fair. That there is a a standard. That life isn't arbitrary or relative. It's not subjective to a person's interests. No, what this is saying is that there is a right relationship between how we should interact as people. And what we find when we look at this, and, and the psalmist is telling us in verse 142, that your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true, is telling, it's really a reminder of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, why do I say this is a reminder of Genesis 1 and 2? What we find in Genesis 1 and 2 is that it tells us that God's Spirit was hovering over the chaos. And that when He spoke His Word, His righteous Word, in accordance with his characteristic and attribute and his ethical standard, that from there he began to bring out of the chaos order or righteousness. He brought out of the disorder, out of the discord, and he ordered it through the power of his word and the power of his spirit. Talks about how God created through the power of his word and he created all things into existence and it was good, indeed very good. He creates humanity. And what does it tell us in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that he creates us in his image. And in creating this world that's good, this world that is righteous, it was a world that was to adhere and, and within the fabric of it was woven his ethical standard. And so that we were to treat one another as the image of God. We were to go and see the beauty and the righteous and the ethical standard and the moral purity in which God had woven into the fabric of creation. And we were to see that and be drawn into praise. And that through that and the way we would treat one another, we were exercising and exhibiting shalom, which was fullness. It was integrity. It was a wholeness. It was a complete, was completeness. It was a fruitfulness. It was the absence of chaos. It was the absence of disorder. And so we understand that through God's righteous word and through the characteristic of who he is, he creates all things out of nothing and he creates them righteous to reflect his glory. But what we see that is as he created all things to be righteous and drew that from within, from without, from with, I don't know what the right word is, but he drew it out of the chaos. That we see in Genesis 3, there is a serpent that creeps into the garden. And what does that serpent do? Did God really say? He begins to cast a seed of doubt about God's word. 
And in turn, he is casting a seed of doubt about who God is. Is God really ethically pure? Is his standard just? It says, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You realize if you would eat of that fruit and become like God, then you could live by your rules. You would be like him. You could, your rules would be what you would live by. And what we see is that through this temptation and this casting the seed of doubt about God's word, that these folks no longer recognize God as king, no longer recognized him as righteous. But through the doubt, the serpent was sowing the seed of, of, of discord. And we saw that the good and very good creation began to slide back in to chaos. Began to slide back in to disorder. Quickly they hid themselves because they realized that living under their own rules and rejecting God as king and disobeying his word, that they were exposed. They were vulnerable. That their righteousness had been uniquely and intimately connected to the Lord's and now it was gone. And they were shown to be what they were, a fraud. They were in adverse circumstances and asking questions, turning to their own rules, trying to make sense of life. One of the most indicting statements in all of the Bible, in my opinion, it comes from Judges. That it says the people did what was right in their own eyes. And since the garden and through judges and even till today, what we see as we look at the news media is that people are striving in our culture to do what is right in their own eyes. We live in a world that rejects the idea, the principle, that there is a standard of truth. That there is an ethical standard, that there is moral purity, and that through this what we see is that people are going out and doing what is right in their own eyes, and they're rejecting God as king. And what we see is when we look at places like Seattle, when we look at riots across the country, when we look at turbulent election years, when we look at the global scale, we don't see things moving towards order and righteousness where we're treating one another as, if, as, as Im, image bearers of the high king. No, we're turning and we're distancing ourselves from the chaos that we see from someone else. We're, we're trying to distance ourselves from them. And it doesn't matter which side of the, the debate that you're on, each other is pointing fingers at the other, which is exactly what happened in Genesis 3. Lord, pointing the finger at the Lord, dangerous thing. Look, at, look what the woman you gave me made me do. From Eve, Lord, look what the serpent made me do. None of us want to own our own Attempts to live by our rules. We're always looking for a scapegoat. We're always looking for a way out. And we find ourselves in those places attempting to live by our own rules, doing what this passage says that the psalmist foes do, and that is forget 
God's Word. You see, there's this juxtaposition in here about remembering it and forgetting it. Remembering it and forgetting it. How oftentimes, as a parent, I've gone to my child and I've said, why did you do that? Daddy, I forgot. But how often have I disobeyed the Lord and gone to Him in repentance and prayer and saying, Daddy, I forgot. Daddy, I forgot. I'm no better. I forget His Word and I have not hidden it in my heart as I ought so that I would not sin against Him. And we find that in this, that in forgetting God's Word, that we continue to slide into chaos as we attempt to live by our own rules. But what we know about God's righteousness, what we know about His ethical standard, is that it, with, woven within who He is is this covenantal dynamic. What that means is that when He makes an agreement, when He gives you His word, He sticks to it. And no sooner had sin crept into the garden and judgment been brought to Adam and Eve than God, through speaking to the serpent, talks about how there will come a day when the Lord will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent, and that he will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. Even there, God is giving His righteous promise to people who do not deserve it. To to people who are trying to live by their own rules. And He says, I'm going to make the rules right. All the chaos and where this thing is sliding, I'm going to pull you out. In an attempt to restore righteousness to the creation that I love, that I have pledged myself to, I'm going to give my son. And in giving my son, he's going to come and and, and come in the form of a babe and take on flesh. And he's going to submit himself and he's going to see and experience around him all the brokenness. And he's going to observe all the ways people are trying to do what is right in their own eyes. There's going to come a day when he's going to go outside the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to be through a a tragedy of justice nailed to a cross. And in that tragedy of justice, he's going to take on himself the sin. All the ways people have tried to do what is right in their own eyes. And in him taking it to himself, he is going to make those people who believe in him right. Right with God, right with themselves, right with creation. And what God is saying to Adam and Eve, though they don't fully understand at that point, and what we see is we don't fully understand ourselves to this day, is that each time a child professes faith in Christ and comes to the Lord's table and eats and drinks of the feast, Jesus is taking a piece back. He's restoring order. Each time an adult hears the gospel and turns from the ways that they've been pursuing their own life, their own rules, and they, they submit to his lordship and they understand his grace and that they are saved by faith and the one who gave his, gave his life for them, 
Jesus is winning one more battle. And so, friends, as a church, we should be about seeing people come to know Jesus. Because seeing people come to know Jesus is evidence that Jesus wins. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. When we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor is ourself, we're living by His rules and not ours. We're submitting ourselves to His lordship and not ours. And so what do we do in the presence of this fallen world? In this passage, I want us to to look at a few things about who God is and His righteous character. First, God knows. God knows the brokenness that we all experience. The brokenness that we experience in church language is what we call sin. And as David noted in Psalm 51, that sin isn't ultimately against one another, it's against him. And so the sin, as much as it is heavy upon us and weighs us down, it is breaking his heart. And because even when sin crept in and his beautiful world that had been ordered rightly began to slide back into creation or slide back into chaos, God spoke in that space and gave a promise. And he gave that promise because he knew the tragedy that sin was going to bring. And ever since that day in the garden when Adam and Eve were kicked out east of Eden, God has been working to bring back and restore all things. What we understand that when we understand the reality of how God knows all sin, it isn't that God knows all sin out there. He knows all sin in here. And so when God, when I understand that he knows every thought, word, and deed, and every way that I've tried to live by my own rules, what that does is it annihilates my attempts at self-justification. It annihilates my attempts at self-righteousness. Because what I'm trying to do in my own self-righteousness, something that I struggle with, is I'm trying to say, Lord, look at how I'm better than him. Look at how I'm better than her. Lord, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as that person. No, but he knows the ways I've looked at other folks and judged them. He knows the way that I've lost my temper when I can't get kids to rub sunscreen on the beach. He knows the way that I've looked at folks with disdain about whether they're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. He knows all those things, and all those things are what separate me from the love, from his love. And it's why I need a Savior. And so God knows that, and him annihilating my own self-justification and my self-righteousness helps me to remember that the righteousness that I have is what B.B. Warfield called an alien righteousness. It's something foreign to me. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when the Apostle Paul is talking about this, and I'm going to read it because it's worth reading, and I don't want to botch it as I'm prone to do. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become God's righteousness. We get an alien righteousness that that was earned by Jesus. And it's by grace and by faith that when we're turning to him in that and through the gift of the Spirit, applying his word to our life, when we understand that our attempts at self-righteousness and self-justification just don't work. And when we turn to him in utter dependence and humility, 
that is there, that, that is there in that place that we are changed, that we're transformed, that we're turned into his righteousness. And so God, God knows the plight. And what we understand about the cross is that God cares. It's real easy for the young lady who's sitting there and all she can see is encumbered by the world around her and the brokenness that has entangled her mind and ensnared her heart. It's easy to think that nobody cares. But that word care, I didn't know this, I looked it up. In Old and Middle English, and it has its entomology from, from uh, German The word that we use for care, where we would say someone shows concern, originally meant lament. It originally meant to show great sorrow or grief. You see, because God knows the brokenness, because God knows the suffering, because He knows the ravages of sin and the way it violates His creation and violates His people, God cares. He laments. It tells us that that when Jesus looked at the people, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And his heart was broken. And oh, how he longed to gather them to himself. And it was through that longing and, and upholding his father's righteousness that he went to the cross and became sin. He took on the brokenness, the one who had faithfully lived by God's rules all the days of his life, lived as if he had been the most rebellious pagan ever. And he experienced God's justice. He experienced the punishment for our attempts to do what is right in our own eyes. And, and he did this in a way in order to make us right. You see, God knows and God cares, but God's making it right. And what it means that God is making it right is that he is bringing again out of the chaos of our world the order and the shalom that he has pledged himself to. The fabric of his very existence. In Revelation, if you ever get caught up and you think there's no end in sight, well, there is. And it centers around a throne. And in Revelation 20, the apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. Great and small, standing before the throne, and books, books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
when we read about this book of life, and in the passage it talks about other books, what that means is for your name to be written in the book of life means that it had to be erased out of the book of death and written with indelible ink that was purchased because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And it tells us that there is a time that for all those who want to live and do what is right in their own eyes, who want to be contributors to the chaos rather than restorers of what is righteous, that they will ultimately be judged. And as David is sitting there looking, I, some think it's David, I'd love to say it's him today, but the psalmist is sitting there, and as he's considering his surroundings and all the adversity and all the brokenness that he's experiencing and the persecution and the rejection and the isolation and all the things, because people are forgetting his, God's word. They're trying to do what is right in their own eyes, which means they are not bringing shalom to the psalmist, and they are not treating him as one who bears the image of God. That there will be a day when they will be judged, and they will receive justice. They will receive what is coming to them for attempting to live in their own accord and independent of God. And doing what is right in their own eyes. But what is even more beautiful in the passage goes on. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see what that's saying? When it's saying that there is no more death, That judgment has been finally paid. And all that was due for those who sought to live and do what was right in their own eyes has been satisfied. And that there is no threat of hopelessness because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so these folks, what you see is a recreation, a reordering of the way God had intended way back in Genesis 1 and 2. And then again, out of the chaos, he brings order. And he establishes Shalom. And it isn't that he's going to establish a Shalom and that we're just waiting for a couple more chapters and then this thing's all going to go to pot again. No, this is definitive. There is no reversal because of what Christ has accomplished. And so friends, the question is, what space are you entering this morning? How did you come in here? You took a shower, you brushed your teeth, you got your coffee and got your breakfast. Perhaps you had an argument in the car on the way here. Maybe you rode separately, and that's the only reason why you sit. You can say that you didn't. You get here, you come into this place, you put on a smiley face, but you're wearing a mask, so it doesn't really matter. But we come into this space, and all of us are carrying the hurts of this world. We're carrying the hurts of the ways that we have been sinned against. Sinned against even years ago that have left scars that we can't get over even to this day. The ways that we've sinned against others. The way we've violated their innocence. The way we haven't seen them as image bearers. 
Friends, regardless of how you've come into this space, whether it's through having the greatest year in real estate that you've had in a long time, or you don't know where your next paycheck's coming from, the reality is we don't face the next moment. We don't face tomorrow or the next day or the next day as people without hope. Because what a righteous God has given us in his righteous word is the unfolding drama of a righteous Savior who dies in the place of sinners, an unrighteous death, in order that those who were sinners might become the righteousness of God, be restored in right relationship to the King. And that forever, when judgment has been paid and justice has been settled, we will live in that right relationship with him. So friends, you may go out of here and you may think that this is all a bit of a farce. My question is, well, what are you going to turn to? Who's writing a better narrative to you, for you? What we have in a world that rejects absolutes and rejects truth is that we have been given what is true. So you can either believe it or not. My prayer for you is that the Spirit would move, it would blow upon your heart and blow upon your mind, and that He would drop the scales from your eyes and He would open and, and, and illumine this book for you, that you would have understanding. That God has had a plan forever to do what is right. And he has given, his, us, given us his word to remember of the rescue that we have in Jesus. Last week we said that the only way that we can live God, in God's world, in God's way, is to immerse ourselves in God's word. We have to turn again to his word to have hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you have written for us a story that is with an ending that is greater than any happily ever after we've heard of. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross, and we thank you that he gave himself up for us as sinners. Lord, we think about the way we scoff at others and turn, uh, sneer our noses at those whom we might disagree with, and Lord, there is so much in my own life, Lord, that Jesus could disagree with. But Lord, he pursued me and loved me and made me right. Lord, I pray that that would be the truth that you'd write upon our hearts. Lord, it would be what encapsulates our minds. And that, Lord, we would go out and we would be the bearers of shalom, bringing righteousness out of the chaos by those who've been called according to your grace. Lord, help us to know this reality, to know this truth, Lord, to believe it against all odds. Lord, would we not be a people who believes a lie to be the truth? Lord, Satan wants us to believe the truth is a lie. Lord, but you are righteous and you are just. And Lord, help us to trust you each moment of every day and every day of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.